Hi, I'm Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger and I'm the director of New Wine, New Wineskins. Welcome to New Wine Tastings, where every week we'll have an opportunity to engage people from diverse backgrounds, all in the attempt to build relational bridges through Jesus in contemporary culture. We are desirous of the opportunity to engage in deep and meaningful ways, and we're really thrilled and excited to have you with us. Hello, I'm Paul Lewis Metzger, the director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins. Welcome to another episode of New Wine Tastings, where we're seeking to build relational bridges through Jesus in contemporary culture. And it's a real privilege uh, for me today to interview my longstanding friend, uh, Dr. Ross Hallback. And we're going to be discussing Ross's book, uh, the title of which is Bonhoeffer and the Racialized Church. It just came out this uh, late summer, early autumn. Uh, I believe it was with uh, Baylor, correct, Ross? That's when it yep. uh, came out just uh, uh, just a few months ago. And this is uh, bound up with his doctoral research at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, and uh, also just work over the years in Portland, Oregon. Um, we've known each other for a long time through uh, work at church, through uh, New Wine, New Wineskins, through Multnomah Seminary. And I'm just really delighted in following Ross's sojourn. So, uh, Ross, again, thanks for joining us for New Wine Tastings. Thank you for having me. And uh, as I had already alluded to, uh, you pursued your doctorate on this subject of really Bonhoeffer and the racialized church as it came together in this book. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> did you see this coming when you first started uh, your seminary sojourn and you know, pursuing graduate studies, that this is where you would end up with, you know, your doctoral work and your first book? No. <laughs> the long and the short of That's yeah. a really detailed answer. So. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I feel like in many ways, I was dragging my feet along the way. Um, I came to seminary with the intent of doing overseas missions work. And, um, had no real um, view of issues of race or wasn't thinking through topics like gentrification. Um, and I, I think in seminary had some exposure um, talking about race, talking about gentrification. And uh, it wasn't really until um, I joined uh, inner city church when my wife and I, Rachel first got married uh, that those discussions became um, more real to me. Mm -hmm. And I, I even remember being in discussions early on and um, suggesting that we don't really need to talk about race, um, that we should be talking about gentrification, which I didn't see as a racial issue at the time, um, but was really impacted by people who continually brought me back to the question of race. And then even when I went to do my PhD, I was still intent on talking about gentrification as a, a topic and was steered by my uh, supervisors to talk about race. So <laughs> as pertinent as it is now, um, over the last 10 years, it wasn't really the topic that I was driving towards. And I felt something was drawing me into it um, over and over again. Uh, and we'll get further into your work uh, in just a minute. We've interviewed you before with others on the subject of uh, gentrification. Just since you've mentioned since you've mentioned that word a few times, could you just define it for the viewers in case they're not aware of it? 
Yeah, gentrification is a term that comes from uh, research out of London, talking about the gentry or the landowners who come in um, and uh, own the land and transform it. Uh, in inner cities in the U.S., it's been a term that's been used as uh, people are pushed out, as land prices go up, um, as development happens, um, and those who are the landowners uh, change the aesthetic and the look of a place. Um, and so, as and it's a complex issue. So, but that's generally how it's defined. Yeah. And uh, that said, uh, you know, Portland uh, has been. Uh, featured in terms of that very issue um, uh, of gentrification, you know, both in terms of local news and national news uh, as the central corridor, a uh, very white city becomes increasingly white, <laughs> if you will, and uh, minority communities uh, economically and otherwise pushed out uh, <clears throat> into the suburbs or elsewhere. And uh, the church that you're alluding to uh, was right in the midst of that in North Portland or is in the midst of that in North Portland. Uh, and so uh, no doubt you'll allude to this a bit more as we proceed. And so uh, as you've dealt with the subject of race, really, really moving further and further into that subject of race, you know, it's it's timely, very timely. And I, I don't want to say like, oh, isn't this wonderful? Your book came out at a great time. I mean, it's in the midst of great horror. You know, when we think about um, George Floyd's, uh, the shooting, or not shooting, but the strangling, the murder of George Floyd, um, the uh, so many other incidents of, uh, you know, police brutality and uh, racialization in our society, uh, your book comes out right during that time. And so, uh, and again, it's been going on for generations, you know, 400 years of uh, systemic oppression by the dominant culture, which you and I are a part of, right? So, I mean, it's not like I'm wanting to point the finger at this one group over there. It's a system that we helped to create, if you will. And I think that that's important for our viewers. We're all implicated in this regard. And I think that's going to be something that you're going to get into a bit more as we proceed, but um, the book was dedicated uh, to an African-American woman who passed away uh, a few years ago. We both knew her, you were very good friends with uh, Stacy Jo Dunn, police officer, African-American Christian. Do you wanna to speak to Stacy's life and legacy uh, for a few minutes, Ross, and because you dedicated it to her and her impact on your life? Yeah, I wouldn't have written this book without Stacy, and so that's the large reason I dedicated it to her. Um, as I shared earlier, as Rachel and I began going to this inner city church, Stacy was a person that really reached out to me personally and challenged me to think more deeply about race, especially if I was considering gentrification, um, and constantly brought me back to the topic. Uh, it was it was something that she was working at the police bureau in Portland on, um, working to facilitate discussions on race, um, and then she applied those same methods and um, to our church leadership team. So we had we had facilitated groups um, that was originally done by outside facilitators to talk through issues of race and how they manifest themselves in our church. And that was really the seed that birthed my PhD and, and then this book. 
so it was really, it began with her. And the amazing thing for me, and, and even going to her memorial service, a lot of the police officers, white police officers showing up at her memorial service saying over and over again, Stacy was the type of person who didn't call you out, but that called you up. And um, that's what she was for me. Um, even when I early on when I started and I changed my topic to race, I reached out to her and asked her to give me a list of books to read. And instead of giving me a list of books, she shipped me half of her library <laughs> of books. Um, to, and so the way she supported me, um, knowing who I was and that I didn't have it figured out, but, but pushing me in a way that cared for me um, really reveals who, who Stacy was and, and what I wanted to bring in, into the book. Um, and I think Stacy was the one that had the courage to have the conversation, knowing that it's a very painful conversation to have. For me, it was a surprise because uh, race was a topic I knew was important, but I didn't realize how much was underneath the surface. And it was only through having those conversations within the context of our church that I realized how explosive it was. For our church, we were a church that was around 400 to 500 people. And as we had the discussion, it quickly dwindled to a church that was closer to 100 or less. Um, and it was largely because of how explosive the, the very conversation was on race. And that was where I was realizing that there was something here that I needed to dig into further. What, what was going on and why was this topic so explosive for our church. Thank you, Ross. And, you know, just, you know, knowing you for years and, you know, seeing the progression that, you know, we're all uh, a part of this journey in one way or another, whether we are responding well or, or not, uh, <clears throat> it has been something to watch you further embedded in this, um, this conversation, this struggle. It's not simply theoretical. I think, you know, if people know you, they, they realize you're a very theoretical person, you know, an engineer by trade, uh, you, you work as an executive in a company. You're not in what some will think, okay, the, the, the ivory tower, uh, you know, even though you were doing doctoral work in a very stellar project, uh, you're in the business world and you're in the, the scientific community and so this is something that everyone, whether they're an academic, whether they're a pastor, whether they're a businessman, businesswoman, you know, uh, you know, blue collar, uh, you know, uh, person mechanic, whatever, we're all a part of this. And it's just, this is your particular journey and particular influences. This particular church in North Portland, Stacy Dunn, uh, this police officer, African-American, um, just uh, this is something for all of us. Uh, we're all on this journey in one way or another, and I, I, I want that to come home to our, our viewers. Um, that said, moving into the, the particular book, and it's not, okay, now that we're done with that, no, I mean, that shaped, as you said, this shaped everything. It's not just Bonhoeffer, and, it's, and I think you really do have skin in the game, and you seek to have skin in the game. You're seeking, you and Rachel are seeking to grow in this. Hopefully we all are. And so, um, as this church experience, as Stacy and others shaped 
this journey that you're continuing to be a part of and on. Um, you know, it's it's important that we bring in Bonhoeffer now and what this book is about, uh, you know, theoretically and ethically and the like. Uh, you know, how does Bonhoeffer and his theology bear on this subject? Um, how does it bear on this subject as it relates to the United States? He's a German theologian. He, he studied here at Union Seminary. He was engaged, uh, experienced the African-American church in Harlem. Uh, that shaped him. It shaped his experience back in Germany. But how does his theology, this book that you're working on with his theology, bear upon the subject of race in the United States today, including gentrified and racialized Portland? Yeah, uh, just as far as a method, I think for me, Bonhoeffer was a way of posturing myself as entering the conversation as a white male. And I think that's important. Just like you said, um, I bring myself to the project and to the research. I'm informed my, by my life and my experiences. Um, and it was really conversations with people of color in my church that made me realize that that much of this world and much of the church is catered to me um, and gives me privilege. So even though Bonhoeffer is not American, I think historically he's seen as white and he's European. So lamentably, the aesthetic that he gets is a privileged one. Um, And so my use of Bonhoeffer is a way of cognizantly thinking through the topic and entering into it uh, with my placement. So that's one important reason for using Bonhoeffer. I think in, I could have used other European theologians, but because Bonhoeffer has this perennial following and people continually looking to Bonhoeffer, I wanted to look at him closer, um, and think through maybe ways that people haven't thought of some of the things that he said and did. Um, but the, the way that I think Bonhoeffer helps and has import for the discussion of race really comes down to his, his view of the church, um, beginning with his doctoral dissertation on, on the church and him talking about how the church is a concrete historical community that's very flawed and has uh, a lot going on with it, um, even a sociological viewpoint of the church. And at the very same time, him saying, but this is still a reality of God's revelation. And it's holding those two things together that I felt made Bonhoeffer such a powerful voice. Because as I dug into looking at the church um, and its racialized past, it's overwhelming. And there's the sense of wanting to disengage, of getting angry at people of why are you not getting this or turning to apathy that is just too big to take on. And what I really appreciated about Bonhoeffer, how I think he helps us in the United States uh, and globally is to say, we can take an honest look at the church historically and how it has been racialized and all the wrong things that it's doing and has done. And yet at the same time, ask the question, how is God yet working through this community? Um, And that's really the approach that Bonhoeffer allowed me to take uh, in this book. You know, at some point, maybe uh, you will take what you just said and write that up as a book in terms of your personal journey, more of a, a spiritual um, autobiography through the lens of Bonhoeffer 
um, because I thought that was really powerful what you just shared. I mean, he, he guards against triumphalism on the one hand and this kind of faulty optimism and perfectionism on the one hand as if, you know, it's like almost like a Kincaidian painting of the church. Uh, no disrespect to my friends who love Kincaid. Um, but, uh, and it's also, um, he's guarding against this pessimism and the cynicism and we're going to come to that issue of holy, uh, holy righteous, holy sinful, that, that Lutheran thematic structure that no doubt shaped him in various ways and in, in key ways on the subject and does you as well. And I think that's so important um, for us to keep in mind. So he's really almost like an icon for you, not like someone to worship or someone like he's a celebrity because he couldn't stand that stuff. Um, but it's more like he's a window through which to pass for you. And he's also a mirror to you at the same time, showing you, yeah, I have these same struggles. You, he's, he's ahead of you a bit, but he also reflects back on you is what I hear you saying. Yeah, I mean, one whole chapter is just looking at Bonhoeffer as saint and Bonhoeffer as, as sinner. Right. Um, you know, the way that he's been idolized maybe in, in harmful ways right. um, as a solution, um, even around race issues. Yeah. But, you know, he's faced a lot of critiques from the Jewish community um, and the ways that he played into the same rhetorical traps of uh, Nazism. And so it you see as you dig in and see both sides, you know, it's very complex. And the thing that I, I appreciate about Bonhoeffer is his his reflectiveness on himself. And yet at the end of the day, um what he relied on was who god said he was um and so that wasn't whether he was a saint or a sinner um but that he was a child of god yeah just as you're speaking ross uh i keep reflecting on that powerful poem in letters and papers from prison who am i and at the end he says you know i don't know who i am but God, you know me, <laughs> you, know, you know, I'm yours. He throws himself on the mercy of God in the midst of it. And uh, yeah, and I mean, if we're going to be addressing issues like race, we need to have that type of foundation because there's no yeah. way we can yeah. move forward in it if we're really going to take it on. Yeah, amen. Uh, so here, here's the intended purpose of the book that uh, I want to quote for the viewers. Uh, because, and I'm quoting, because God's beginning has already been spoken, the intended purpose of this book is not to imagine a solution for the catastrophic reality of whiteness in the Christian church, but to attend to the triune God's continual speaking in church and world, and to how God's speaking is consistently resisted by the language game of whiteness. And I'm going to ask you to unpack what you mean by whiteness in case viewers don't understand what that means, please. Uh, placing the emphasis on God's speech, I go on to quote from Ross's book, placing the emphasis on God's speech leaves open a relative space for the language game of whiteness to resist God's speaking. But more importantly, it refuses to give whiteness the power to hush God's utterances. The trying God's speaking may be resisted, but God's word is never thwarted, unquote. And again, it's throwing it back on God. We need the triune God to show up. God has shown up. God's ahead of us. God's behind. God is for. God is against, but God is ultimately for. Um, that's the hope, not ourselves. So you want to speak more to your purpose here to unpack it for people, please? Yeah. 
I, I think maybe just briefly talking about whiteness, the real reason of using that language is often when we talk about race or racism, it can be seen as going both ways. And the idea with whiteness is the whole way race is structured is unilaterally, unilateral, as a unilateral relationship. So those uh, who are non-white are related to those who are white and the advantage is given to those who are white. Um, and so it, I call it a language game because a lot of what race is doing is verbalized in and acted out through words. Words shape our bodies. And a lot of the history that I go through talks about even the formation of going from Caucasian to white and from different uh, European nationalities to an assimilation of white. Um, so I call it a language game, um, something that we're enacting. And, and in that way, we're all a part of it. Um, the the purpose of the book that's framed with this quote and thanks for asking the question because it really gets at the heart of what i'm trying to do i think as i started to do the research i did i got frustrated and i got angry and and i wanted to come up with a solution and a kind of aha moment of revealing this is why the church this is why that explosion happened in my church and this is why we're racialized and now you'll be able to see it um and as I went through and read book after book, I realized that there's already so, so much written on how the church has been racialized and, and how deeply it impacts us. Uh, and then also, as I saw people responding to issues of race in the church, I saw this often um, diagnosis that led to an opportunity for a solution or a way out of it. And um, what I tried to resist is an easy solution because my concern is often we turn to easy solutions rather than digging deeper into the problem itself. And so that, that stated purpose is trying to frame that and that it, God encompasses our every act, that theology itself is a reflection on what God has already said. Um, and that, that's patently Bonhoeffer. For Bonhoeffer, Theology must always happen in the context of the church because it has to happen after listening to, to the hearing of God's word as a reflection, as a response. Um, and so in that way, it limits whiteness, but I think it gives us this, this space to deal with it in a way that instead of um, trying to find a solution or a way out of it, the question becomes, how is God working in the midst of a racialized church. So that was the deeper question that I came to that I, I felt was the more important question to ask was not what is the solution or how is the church informed by whiteness? Because I felt like that question has been dealt with, but granted that the church is in this state that we find ourselves here historically, how do we hear God and listen to God? Um, and in that way, when I frame it that way, it makes us think about whiteness not as the problem that, that um, you know, stops God from speaking, but it actually resists the God who already speaks and continues to speak to us. And does it, does it uh, I'm going to loop back to uh, the big picture in a second. Does whiteness, in a sense, also become the occasion 
in which God speaks, you know, I mean, it's it's not an obstacle that keeps God from speaking. You know, God's confronting it and not like, oh, happy fault. I'm not trying to say that, but is there a sense in which with, with Bonhoeffer's emphasis on situatedness, as I understand him, that it becomes a concrete context because the word is always embodied for Bonhoeffer. It's Jesus yeah. Christ. It's always the man for others. The church is the community for others. Is that is that a way of thinking of this in part? Uh, I don't think I would go as far as to say that whiteness is a vehicle for God speaking. No, I, I just meant occasion. That occasion. God Not a vehicle. I don't want to say vehicle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I, uh, the way I've, I think about it is that it can often act as a buffer mm. it it keeps us from not just hearing god but one another mm. um and and you see that historically in that in so many ways the movement of peoples across the atlantic um into other people's lands it wasn't it wasn't an event that came with listening but came with a writing on top of and in that sense, it created a buffer, um, and that buffer um, creates an inability to hear or listen. You know, as, as you're sharing these various reflections, uh, I'm thinking of the movie Crash, which is, of course, about racism. It's about objectification, fragmentation, but there are two quotes in there, if you don't mind me just saying these, uh, sharing these quotes, Ross. First one is, you know, just to your point, um, I didn't ask for your help. You know, I didn't ask for your help uh, when the police officer says, you know, I'm here to help you. And the African-American uh, movie director or whatever who's caught in, you know, a potential life threatening situation uh, says, I didn't ask for your help. You know, so often we're not listening. I mean, I think the, the culture of whiteness, the theology of whiteness, we already come with our prepackaged answers. You're saying we need to first have a posture, not posturing, but posture of listening. Uh, are we listening? Uh, and Bonhoeffer is saying we need to listen to the word of God in community, respond to the word, not just say, listen, but don't do anything. But that's what I hear you saying in part is first a, a, a listening to God's word addressing us. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And then the second thing, and then feel free to unpack it further if you wish. And the second thing is <clears throat> you think you know who you are? You have no idea who you are when the one police officer says to the other who, who thinks he's got it together on these issues. And he says, none of us have it together. And I, I say, that's me. You know, I think I know who I am. It's not just police. It's me. You know, I think I know who I am. I don't know who I am. And, you know, that I, I sense that with Bonhoeffer, he realizes he doesn't even know who he is. And and again, he needs to listen to God's word address him. Um, and I. I, I think your point is so well taken. I remember when we did a forum on blue-eyed, uh, Jane Elliott's um, documentary on that subject, and someone well-intentioned person said right after, so the problem with that forum is we didn't solve the problem that night on race. And I'm thinking, solve the problem? 400 years are going to solve it, like in one night? It's I don't want to say it's just simply living the question, but it's, it's not coming up with quick-fix solutions. I mean, these things... They're embedded in us, and we have a long journey. Um, uh, thoughts on this and taking it further in terms of what you were saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the hardest thing for me as a white male is almost being comfortable with myself and that that self is, you know, has been and is the oppressor in a lot of ways. So how do I live with that without evacuating it? And, um, you know, it, it's so 
it's a tendency to want to solve it, to want to fix the problem rather than sitting in it and have, having to just deal with it um, or, you know, trying to run away from it. Um, and so I think that's where often I, I come back to uh, a God who, who speaks and um, is working through a very messy world and people um, and realizing that, that God uses me even, even me, you know, the chief of sinners. And so I, I think that that's just a, a real, a real struggle that we can't turn away from. Yeah. Um, and the deeper we go into it, the, the more intense the struggle gets in a lot of ways. Um, and I just, I, I, that's why, you know, I, I, um, am, am driving towards Bonhoeffer and his own conflicted life that wasn't simple. It was very difficult and it got very intense at times. You know, just on, uh, that, and we're going to come back to this, uh, you know, we're not leaving anything, but I just think about the evangelical Christian community that we've been embedded in and, uh, you know, I think years ago we we went from this kind of word of uh, God against culture, um, the word against culture. Now it's sometimes this idea of Christ transforming culture that you find a lot of evangelicals and I uh, engaging, and both can be a form of triumphalism. Maybe the first one is more otherworldliness, and this is more like triumphalism. And uh, but neither is really a matter of listening to the word God of God confronted us. That's why I always loved the Lutheran. I grew up Lutheran, but the uh, Samuel Eustace, Samuel Peccator, the holy, um, you know, righteous, holy, sinful at the same time. We're, we're conflicted in our core as humans, and we desperately need God to show up and this crucified, risen Jesus. And so, um, you know, it's God's first and final word, not whiteness, that should drive us. Not the word of whiteness, but God's first and final word that Bonhoeffer is ultimately seeking to pursue, seeking to listen to, not always successfully, but seeking to do so. You invest a great deal of energy, and it's something we've talked about before, and I'm, I'm always trying to, you know, figure out what you're getting <laughs> at with this, but in uh, penultimate and ultimate, uh, I remember you struggling through these concepts in Bonhoeffer, and they're, they're complex issues, I think, and uh, highlighting the importance of his Lutheran theological orientation, like we said, saint and sinner, sinner and saint. So how does this bear on your analysis of the racialized church, Rose? Yeah, I think going back to this question, I one thing I, I personally struggle with, and I think that the critique could be is this whole sinner and saint is, means you just end up doing nothing. It can end up in apathy. So, you know, why even try? Why make a difference? Um, you're, you're just kind of paralyzing yourself and looping yourself in circles. For me, um, m my interpretation or how I understood Bonhoeffer's ultimate and penultimate. It it was the way he was going to structure his his final book that he was writing, Ethics, and he wanted to call it Preparing the Way, which is really the penultimate. And it's this idea that um, we can either resist God speaking, or we can respond in such a way that we prepare the way for that word to come again. And the word is always coming, but the question is, are we going to be resistant to it or are we going to prepare the way? And for Bonhoeffer, that was a very concrete thing. So slaves who are forced to work on Sunday, that is resisting 
concretely the opportunity to hear God's word. Bonhoeffer would take it that concretely. Um, so for me, that means as, as I respond to God's word, it is my responsibility. It is my opportunity to find a way to partner with God's movement and prepare for his word to be given again. And so that that that's the ultimate word, and it takes the the power away from whiteness or or a white person to give that ultimate word. We all have a role in preparing the way, and that that role is different for different people. Um, so it gives that nuanced kind of texture and a, allowance for you know my response to God's word word to prepare the way is going to be different than a person of color, um, because what I hold in, in the opportunities that have been given to me are different. Um, and so I have a different response. And, but the idea of preparing the way comes from Isaiah 40 and John the Baptist, that every hill will be lowered and every valley lifted up. So I might be the hill that's being lowered and other valleys are being lifted up. We all have a part in that preparing, but ultimately it's looking and anticipating that God is going to speak and has spoken. And so um, that's really how I use the idea of penultimate and ultimate and why I think it's so helpful and that, you know, we're not just waiting for God to come back or, or Jesus to come back or that next word. We are in the movement to prepare so that we can be ready to hear even more clearly um, that next word. Yeah. So it's a, it's a preparation. It's not a, a sitting back and coasting. It's a, it's a preparation. It's an anticipation right? Uh, that God will speak again and that God will make all things new in, in God's time, right? I mean, there is a hope. Uh, we might call it a future hope or an eschatological hope in breaking, correct? I mean, breaking yeah. Into, yeah. into the present. Um, and, you know, and again, the part of the criticism or a criticism of the Lutheran movement with the uh, simul justus, simul peccator, holy, righteous, holy, sinful, is that once in such a dialectic, this disequilibrium or what have you, that one doesn't do anything and you know that it that there is no sanctification uh growth uh so whether it's roman catholicism or reformed thought which would criticize well there has to be a perfection it's not just the stasis and i'm not saying that lutheran good lutheran theology would go there um bonhoeffer's not going there but he sees the need that he can't just stay in that tension right that there but it's not like he's going to do it or that the church is going to do it. God, just like your purpose in the book, God's going to come. God's word is going to speak. God's triune being uh, disclosed to the word is going to speak us into that future. And we prepare ourselves like John the Baptist, perhaps prepare the way. And we ourselves need to be prepared Would that. Would that fit what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the idea of sanctification is not one that Bonhoeffer talks about a, a lot, a whole lot, but definitely there is, you know, a process that we're going through. And I think as, as you prepare the way you, you realize that there's more preparing to do. <laughs> and that's almost um, part, part of the process. Um, it's a continual repentance and it's, it's especially applicable to, issues of race because it's such a deep problem to enter into that often 
it's not until you take the first step that you you realize what the next step of repentance might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it is that continual process in reliance on God. Um, and ultimately, that's what it comes back to. The, the, the Lutheran worry of sanctification is that it becomes uh, autonomous from God's working. Right. Uh, I'm going to shift the last question uh, to really be about application okay because i think a lot of people might say well this sounds good or this is all abstract nonetheless you know so as good as it is it's abstract i'm not saying it is i'm just saying i could see how people might uh reflect in that way uh but as i said earlier this is something that shapes you even now you know you're working as a uh, an executive in a company and you really try and i'm not trying to toot your horn um but you're you're trying to live into this reality of how do you in the particular role or roles you're given uh not like you're giving it to people but you're trying to foster space where other people's abilities and creativity can shine and there's equity. I, I know that that's what you're about, even within the, the church context uh, that you alluded to that shaped you and Rachel um, continues to shape you. It was learning to listen more. I mean, I think, I think listening, uh, I don't want to say that you're providing the opportunities, but you're creating space. You're, you're moving over, if you will, you know, to create space so that others can shine. I think that's all taking seriously what you're after. It's a, it's a form of listening and listening to God's word. How is God speaking into your life today, um, both in the, the writing of this book, both in your work in the local church and in the business community and beyond? Any, any closing thoughts of how you're seeking to live into this, listening to God's word, anticipating God's word? seeing that word come into the present circumstances. Could you speak to that just in brief as we deal with Bonhoeffer, racialized church in your life today? Yeah, I think um, I keep coming back to that word listening and its importance. I think in my own work, um, one thing that we're doing um, at my job is we have a committee on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and, And what that group is about is uh reflecting on how are we doing you know how comfortable is our company for people who don't look like me um and how is it structured maybe in such a way that we're we're hiring and tailored towards um a a certain group and i think from my research that's clearly goes across the board whether it's schools, work, um, church, it's in every place. So I think a good place to start is um, doing some work on yourself. Um, And even I've been thinking about how a lot of the external work, whether it be a company, school, a person, begins internally. Um, And that's not an excuse. I just think those things are so interrelated. and my fear and one of the warnings I give and kind of the conclusion of the book where I do call for a need for reparations and, and action to be taken, but that white people need to begin with their own work on themselves, a realization. Um, 
and coming to terms and sitting in the problem because my my fear is that we often want to be the solution um, and without recognizing that we're the problem. <laughs> and so I think coming to terms and then seeing that it's not, it doesn't have to be a major thing, but even John the Baptist's call, it was where you're at right now, repent. Whatever you're doing, wherever the opportunity is for you, in your workplace, in your school, um, be asking those difficult questions of yourself, of the community, um, of how is it tailored and maybe catering to a certain certain group and not to everyone. Well, thank you, Ross. I really appreciate uh, your time today and your reflections, and I encourage people to get a hold of a copy of Bonhoeffer and the Racialized Church, Baylor Press, 2020, Dr. Ross Hallback. Ross, thank you for joining me at New Wine Tastings. As I've been listening to you and seeking to listen to God's word and seeking to listen to brothers and sisters who are African-American and Native American, First Nation, uh, Asian American alike, um, that's something I need to do. That's something we need to do. That's something we need to constantly do uh, is what I take away from your, your words today, to be in a, a, a posture, not posturing, in a posture of listening, to listen to God, to listen to others and respond as we anticipate God speaking to us anew. Uh, so Dr. Hallback, thank you for joining us. Paul Lewis Metzger, signing off for this episode of New Wine Tastings. Blessings to all of you.